0: Welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. I'm your host, Bill Words, with co-host Liz Hicks, joining us today on this episode 109 on March 30th, 2023, Liz, how's it going?
1: It is going great. Thank you so much for having me again. It's so great to be back. How are you doing today, Bill?
0: Fantastic, fantastic. We're getting to uh, spring. Uh, most of Europe hasn't noticed that yet. It's still snowing all over the place, but uh, but I think we're, we're slowly <laughs> getting there. So I think can, people can finally uh, lower the, the gas bills that they might have had over the last few months, which is good in fighting... Uh, the, the the Russian war machine as well. So thanks for the sun uh, helping us out here, and uh, <laughs> we have two great topics that we're talking about today, and I think we'll dive right into it, uh, Let's do it, which is the the first one, and and we've addressed some of this on the podcast before, but never quite in depth, and that is advertising, and uh, advertising has a lot of different uh, faces online, from all the annoying pop-ups you might ha- you might have <laughs> uh, if you're not paying for a premium subscription on uh, on your news site to uh, now also streaming services. So let's talk about this first, because that is something that many Europeans will not actually know about. Uh, We discussed this pre-recording. Many of the popular streaming sites in Europe do not, at least yet, have an ad-based downgraded version. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I've been reading that Netflix does this already in the United States, where uh, for a cheaper plan, you get ads. Um for somebody who does use streaming services quite a bit, Liz, what does that actually look like if you have ads on uh, your popular movies on Netflix?
1: Yeah, so, you know, it is interesting. I think it's a great move that Netflix did this, by the way, just to start off. I believe they launched this last year. It didn't quite make the splash that Netflix was hoping, but it is picking up quite a bit now. Um, so I believe now, you know, you can pay $6.99, uh, U.S. dollars, that is. Um, in order to get this kind of basic package where it allows you to stream, um, you know, one, you can, you can only do one stream at a time, and then it includes ads, which I think is a great option for consumers to have. Netflix has four different tiers um, of you know, options you can sign up for. Um, the premium one is the most expensive, that's $20 a month, but you can stream four videos simultaneously, so share that password with your friends, um, and then they have, um, the the tier below that is like just under $16, where you can stream two simultaneously, the one below that is I think like $10 a month, where you can stream one with no ads, and then this new um, option as well, so I think it's great, um, I personally don't enjoy watching ads, so I have a tier up where I can stream a couple simultaneously Um, but again I think it is a really great option for consumers Um, and it's a great revenue source I think for Netflix as well from what I've read they've actually been able to get mostly new uh, customers through this Um, so it's not people downgrading but it's new new consumers coming into the fold for Netflix uh, which is huge and again just providing that option that choice for consumers I think is a huge win
0: what is interesting to me, because I'm a I'm a user of Hulu, which is made possible yeah. by the use of a VPN, and then I do see the ads, and it's <laughs> well, it, it is quite interesting to me because I do get to see what Americans get to see on ads, uh, and American ads are very different to ours. A lot of music, uh, self composed uh, songs going with the with the oh, yeah. with the company slogans. Um,
1: but what, what is what, what was jingles. It? Right,
0: exactly. Some of them are quite catchy. Uh, Some of them not so much. But uh, what was interesting to me is that they're not targeted. I I was under the impression they would at least target, you know, with all the data they're gathering, they would Mm -hmm. be targeted. But I get ads for things that, uh, well, don't interest me in the slightest. Um, And targeted ads have been around for quite a bit. So I'm I'm curious. I'm not sure if you have the answer to that. But, like, why are those ads general? Because that was the big thing with TV. Uh, When you used to watch TV, there were all these ads, a lot of things you weren't interested in and targeted advertising has actually made ad experience online better because now when I scroll my social media network I get ads for you know craft beer and the newest Mm -hmm. tech gadgets (laughs) which is something I actually might buy um, uh, instead instead of pitching me uh, I don't know a diaper brand Uh, you know I don't don't have children yet so uh, so I don't know I don't know uh, why why they haven't really upgraded that
1: Yeah, it is interesting. So I have Hulu as well. um, And I have it more for the like live aspect. So instead of paying for cable for TV, I just use Hulu live. Um, So I do see, you know, the commercials and the advertisements through that. Um, sometimes they are targeted based on location. so like I personally live in Michigan and so I'll see especially when it comes towards election time, I do see a lot of you know ads about the different candidates and you know the attack ads and all those fun ones. but otherwise you're totally correct. I mean a lot of you know commercial advertising um you know through TV and these services are not quite as targeted as one would expect perhaps. And um, I think it's a lot of, you know, just larger companies are paying for this space uh, in order to promote their products. And I think it's kind of like a let's just hope, you know, (laughs) that people are viewing it. But I have noticed based off of the channel, um, so whether like for me, I I watch a lot of like Bravo (laughs) or if it's like the news, like if it's the news, you see a lot of honestly like ads targeted towards older folks, like a lot of things about like, you know, different like Medicaid options or a lot of pharmaceutical um, advertisements. But then for things like Bravo, which is more my demographic, you know, young woman drama TV stuff, uh, you know, I see a lot more for like fashion or jewelry or, or things of the like. So I think instead of it being targeted towards individual accounts, it's targeted more towards, you know, what type of consumer is watching these types of channels. Um, But it could get a lot more targeted. But then, like, what you were saying, like, you know, when I'm scrolling through, like, social media, like, Instagram, for example, it's so much more targeted. It seems very personalized. You're getting a lot of, like, craft beer and tech gadgets. I'm getting a lot of, like, Amazon gadgets that I don't need but end up buying. A lot of dog products of, like, matching clothes that I can get with my dog. And just, like, a lot of things like that, which I'm like, great, you guys are nailing it right now I'm absolutely going to be buying these things um, but it's interesting And I think one thing though that's important to bring up is personally as a consumer I think it's really awesome that we do have targeted ads I think it allows companies to obviously be able to you know advertise more effectively and then as a consumer I, I feel like I get to see a lot more of what I would actually want as opposed to just getting it lost in, in the ether of everything else um, but I think it's also important to kind of think about where are they getting this data from. We're obviously big proponents of consumer privacy, especially when it comes to data, especially in this digital world. Um, and so as long as it's being given you know voluntarily, consensually, legally, I say, let's have all the targeted ads. I just my only fear is you know, how are some of these companies acquiring this data? Is it acquired you know more voluntarily or is it being misused perhaps?
0: I agree, and and I think and I think there's a lot more options out there now that allow you to uh, reject all cookies. Um, which I mean, by the way, creates mm-hmm. its own subsection of problems. There's a lot of things that you rely on for uh, websites to remember your login details. Uh, where you know, if you reject cookies, that could also be a problem. But ultimately. Those choices are available, and a lot more consumers are aware of them, and it's a lot easier than it was mm-hmm. uh, just even five years ago, right? I mean, there's totally. browsers now that really just. Uh, yeah, I, I use the the Firefox Focus browser on my phone, uh, where it's just one tab, and then it rem- like it forgets everything after you use it. Um, which 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 is great if you in a bit well let's say if you're in a country that uh, that that takes the rule of law a bit uh, less strictly um, visiting sites of something that is maybe more critical of the government is is is, is better to use on it on a service that doesn't remember everything about you, um, right. <laughs> but I think I think I think a legitimate criticism, which is more on the consumer experience side, is how many ads is too many because mm. as somebody who still follows quite a few YouTube channels, I think Google has really overdone it at this point like i'm not at the point of subscribing to youtube premium and maybe i should but ultimately um you incentivize the consumers to try and get around it because now i'm getting up to 30 second ads before a video plus mid rolls plus pop-ups i think some companies need to be a bit careful on like how much money they think they can make on one video because ultimately it ruins the experience and it doesn't keep people on the platform
1: Totally, I agree, and I think YouTube's a great example of perhaps a platform that uses too many ads. Um, so I feel like I have a really similar experience where, you know, even just to get to the video, you know, you have to watch at least one to two thirty-second ads before you can like skip, and then, you know, them. You also get them in like within the videos themselves, where you have to then watch an ad in order to get back to the content, and it's it is too much, and it does ruin the experience. Um, so I think that's you know definitely something that people should think about, especially some of these these companies and platforms, is if you want people to be consuming this content. And again, I mean that's how they're making money. Well, also off of advertisement, but in order to keep consumers on the platform, you're going to have to enhance the experience for consumers to stay there. My attention span isn't <laughs> like long enough to keep watching all these ads again and again and again. Um, I know there are different blockers and things that you can download. Um, but I, I don't personally, and also, I, I also don't have YouTube premium. I don't think it's quite worth it for me, but, uh, but yeah, I think it is something that consumers should consider.
0: And, and, and I think the platforms uh, can, can look into options of, 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 doing this more efficiently. I, you know, I could imagine something where, um, you know through youtube through a specific channel you could become i mean the, the same way that some some creators use patreon uh, why not envision yeah. a system by which you be- could become a regular contributor to a channel and they would disable the ads just for that person's videos um where maybe you will be lower than a youtube premium subscription but you could end up not having to watch the ads on the channel you contributed to uh, there's a lot of options out there um and uh, it's important for the companies not to become a bit too greedy because uh, there's al- it's mm-hmm. almost like a Laffer curve for, for ad revenue there. Yeah. If, you, if you become a bit too greedy, you might end up having uh, to deal with a few people coming uh, on, your, on your platform. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I, I, I wanted to transition into a completely different topic um, to, to be mindful of our time here. And that is, uh, that is something that whenever you talk about the United States... Um, one of the number one topics that comes up is healthcare, and this is something we need to discuss uh, more often on on this yes. platform. And as somebody who's been using healthcare services a bit more recently, mm-hmm. uh, Liz, I wanted to I wanted to bring you in on this because the Europeans' notions on American healthcare is basically uh, people are in a horrible health condition, and it's impossible to get any type of services unless you're a very rich person. Um, can you? run our listeners down on how healthcare actually works for most people Um, because what we know is in most European countries um, a mandatory system comparable to filling out your taxes you enter your uh, you enter how much you, you make. This is for, for self-employed people. And then they calculate Social Security. Based on that, it's not optional. Um, and you go to your public hospitals and that's where you get your care. Or you're mm-hmm. an employee and then usually it's it's paid by your employer. And, and it's, again, usually a government-run healthcare system. In the United States, it doesn't work that way. How how do you get healthcare?
1: Yeah, it's a little complicated in the US. There's a few different options and um, how to acquire healthcare. Uh, typically, I mean, the majority of Americans get healthcare through their employer. Um, I, th- I mean, I don't know the exact percentage, but I think it's close to like 85% of the United States uses healthcare through an employer. Um, But if you don't have an employer that offers health care as a benefit, most do, some don't. Um, And so if you don't get it through your employer, you can get it through private insurance, um, which there's a ton of different... Companies and folks that want to insure you want to take your money in this in this area And then if you don't go through a private entity, for example, for those that qualify as lower income um, And you know, perhaps can't afford private insurance. We do have government programs Medicaid Medicare one is specifically for the elderly. The other one is targeted more towards lower income folks Um, so there are different options and You've probably heard of Obamacare, which was quite the controversy back in the day. Um, So, for me personally, I actually have private health insurance um, that I got through the Healthcare.gov marketplace. It's like the website that came with Obamacare that they spent like way too much money and time on. It crashed. It actually works really well, which I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's like the one government website that actually is modernized, it seems, and actually functions correctly for the most part. Um, but on there, it's kind of nice because as a consumer, you can go on and, and shop around for what what plan you want. Um, so for us... You know, you pay a premium, which is like your monthly amount that you pay, and then you have your deductible, which is like the amount that you will have to pay in order before essentially it's covered by the rest of your insurance plan. Um, And not everything is covered in an insurance plan, so you have to really read the fine print, which is probably the not great part for consumers here is it is a little complicated to know you know, is it going to cover like your preferred doctor, are they going to be what's considered in network because if they're not in network, you're going to pay a lot more to see that person? Are your like specific medications covered by your plan? If not, you're going to have to pay a much higher price to get those. Um, and things of that nature. So, it is a little complex, but it is nice to be able to shop around for the different options. Um, which I think is great and then the other thing to note too is for those that get insurance through their employer there's not quite as much choice it oftentimes an employer here in the US will offer maybe like three to four different plans for you to choose from um, and then you just opt into the one that makes the most sense for you which can work out Um, but again if you have like specific needs, it almost is easier to go through private, like totally private, not through your employer, in order to be able to shop around and see what makes the most sense for your family or your financial situation.
0: And the re- and the reason that employers provide healthcare is it because it's a write off for the for the companies? Is, is is that is that the reason? Because I mean, I, c- I can imagine that maybe not all of the things that you might want from what you can get in coverage from your employer. If that's not enough, you might get complementary insurance, which is an additional cost. But why why is this system in, in, in this way in the United States that, that your employer covers you?
1: You know, I'm not entirely well-versed on the history of how it got set up through employers. But I do believe that there is a, a sort of write-off of sorts if you provide this for your um, employees um, and i think it and oftentimes too so the benefits that employers typically provide to employees would include health care which would also include typically obviously like the actual like health side but then also vision um, and then dental insurance as well um, and then also it's pretty common that um, employers will offer like retirement plans where they will help contribute to a retirement plan. Usually it's a 401k. Rarely is it a Roth or, or something that will actually be probably more viable for your retirement. Um, but still, it's still a benefit that they offer sometimes. Um, and so I do think, yeah, I think part of it is, you know, just making themselves more attractive on the marketplace towards, you know, quality and, and talented uh, team members to bring on. Um, but also, I think there is a financial incentive for them on the back end as well to provide these things.
0: So let me tell let me tell you about how it works in grand old Europe, and yes, uh, give please. you some perspective on uh, next time you have a conversation about how European healthcare is so great. Uh, because where I'm from, <laughs> uh, so healthcare is mandatory; it's completely run by the government. Uh, well, I, I do I, I insurance is not completely run by the government so um, so I have a I have a mandatory health national health uh, insurance contribution that is not optional in the slightest um, however um, just like you I have a list of things that are covered and to what extent they are covered and they're coded in specific ways so for instance I can go to the doctor and then a lot of patients are not aware of this because they think everything is just covered by the government uh, mm-hmm. they they For instance, one of the things that GPs in my countries do is add something called a DS-8. And the DS-8 is uh, a code that is if you requested a specific time for your appointment, then they add another 20 euros on your bill, which is not covered by national health insurance. And a lot of consumers don't know about this. So all these codifications um, matter. And what people do is they get complementary health insurance to, in order to cover those things, which are private companies. So private companies um, uh, benefit from uh, the, the, the exceptions that are that are that are given by uh, by government. So a lot of people do have private health insurance as well. Then we have what is called the European health insurance uh, system, which means that for emergency care, if you're in any other EU country, you can get care uh, based based on your national health insurance contributions. But you can't just go to a GP in a foreign country. If you're from a country the size of and the population size of Rhode Island, as I am, you can't just drive across the border and get an MRI there. Uh, mm-hmm. You might have to wait. I mean, we wait for up to up uh, up to up to two months for an MRI, even for something like a broken wow. leg. Um, and wow. then a lot of people pay out of pocket in order to go to a private clinic across the border in Germany. There was actually an entrepreneur in Luxembourg who tried a couple of years ago to create private clinics. Uh, um, MRI scanners uh, for for people but he was rejected based on the notion that that would create uh, inequality uh, in the country so the care is not great and you waited quite a long time for these things and also these uh, even though dental and uh, and 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 things like glasses are covered they're not fully covered at all and if you have a bigger problem with uh, with uh, with your teeth that's not great, and for your glasses, um, they're only covered if they if they if your eyesight has deteriorated by a certain margin within a certain wow. time frame. So, very, very often, what happens is that your optician. Wait to send you an invoice for an extra six months or a year so that you send it in later and then you can get it reimbursed through your national health insurance system. So th- you have to become quite crafty in order to get the yeah. reimbursements that you paid quite handsomely for because it's not like those things are cheap. And when you're self employed like me, you actually do see the bill. And sometimes I talk to Americans that tell me, Oh, health insurance is so expensive for me. And then I ask them how much they pay and then I run the numbers. I say, Well, that's about what I pay. Uh, doctors still want to get paid um yeah and, and and you're in an unfortunate reality where we have a lack of doctors because the price caps on reimbursements makes it that if a doctor has, has a specific set of skills and you could charge more for it there's nothing you can do in most European countries. You have to go abroad in order to work privately because you're capped in how much you can actually charge people for it. And what you end up with is, unfortunately, sometimes, but mediocre doctors that just do the bare minimum in order to get to get that insurance money. Um, and, and I think that's the unfortunate reality. And I think the UK with the NHS has, has a specific problem with that. Um, but one of the arguments given in Europe, and that's where I put the question back to you, one of the arguments that we... That the proponents of our system say is that well everybody is covered if you have if you're on a low income if you if you somebody who struggles financially you go to the doctor and you will get care if you mm-hmm. need to go to the emergency room they won't let you die the way they let you die in the united states so how does that actually work if you if you let's say you have a you have a stroke and you're on a, on a-, on a low income and you get you get admitted into the emergency room will-, will they just check your insurance card and say well tough luck you dying today. Is that how it
1: works? (laughs) No. So they have to legally do, do the same thing, essentially, as what you described in Europe, where they have to do everything in their ability to save your life. And then you sort out the bill later, which... Oftentimes, you know, this is the the downside of I think the American health system to some degree is it's so inflated in price. I mean, I've talked before about like the military industrial complex, the healthcare industrial complex, like has given the military one a run for their money. Um, and I mean, an example is you know like a, a a pill of aspirin. You know, you could buy it at a pharmacy or or a store, and it's you know going to cost you maybe like. Ten dollars for a bottle of like a hundred, but at the if you get an aspirin at the hospital, one pill is going to cost you like thirty dollars, and it's just super inflated because of the administrative blow and because of you know they're trying to recoup money from insurance and things like that. So it is interesting, but they do legally have to help you, um, and our emergency system is pretty good overall. It's nothing – I mean, we have, you know, a few Canadian colleagues who we've heard their horror stories about going to the emergency room where you're often waiting for, like, eight-plus hours, if not longer, for things that you would want to get addressed, obviously, in an emergency-type fashion, which is why you would go. Um, So, like, for me, I was – went to the emergency room a couple weeks ago, had a little bout of pneumonia, um, and I was seen – I checked in and got seen within, like, 20 minutes. Like, it was super fast. Um, and, and also, I mean, I, uh, was able to get, you know, like a whole bunch of imaging done, all the labs done, everything done. And I was out of there within, I don't know, maybe four or five hours, but the time I was waiting was only like, again, like 20 minutes. And then outside of that, you know, it was just waiting for like, you know, to get the results from the different imaging and things like that, which naturally isn't going to be instantaneous, but, um, but still very quick in my opinion to like go in, get seen, get what you need, get out. Um, which I think is really nice, but one thing that you mentioned too is, um, you know, with doctors and insurance. So my mother is is a doctor here in the U.S., and it's interesting. So I was talking to her this last week about just healthcare in general comes up quite a bit between the two of us. Um, but she was saying so she works or she um, has a lot of patients who are in the uh, like you know government assisted programs. So either like Medicare or Medicaid. Um, which you know, she's one that's gonna help whoever she can. Um, but it's interesting because like as a practice, they have to be really conscious about what those costs are because they're not they're essentially losing money on patients who get government assistance, which that's not to say that they're not going to serve them. They will still, you know, care for them, serve them, do what they need. Um, but they do have to get a little bit more crafty on the back end as to how to, lower the cost of some of these items that they would need for these patients. Um, otherwise, they're just losing money. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I believe doctors and, and nurses and everyone in the healthcare system should get paid because they're doing work. But I think, too, there's so much bloat within the system, especially on the insurance side. I mean, that's, I think, where we're seeing a lot of issues. And we are pretty ripe for reform. I mean, there were some, I think, positive sides to Obamacare, one being like you can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, I think that's actually pretty viable. Um, But again, it's like the amount of just administration that there is within these insurance companies jacks up the premiums, um, jacks up the deductibles, but the payouts are going – like are becoming less and less. And so it's just becoming a much more expensive system um, with – Kind of less positive results, which I think is unfortunate and, and not great for consumers.
0: Yeah, and I think I think because because we try to feather those effects, what we end up where we end up having to take the blow is the the availability of doctors, when you can get appointments, and how long yeah. you wait. I mean, if with if you if you go to an emergency room in most European countries with pneumonia. Um, you're gonna you're gonna cuff your lungs out for seven hours, but at least it's f- <laughs> free, I guess. Uh, but uh, so 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 that's 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 definitely not an ideal system. I think both system struggle from their from, from from a significant amount of downsides.
1: Yeah.
0: And by the way, if you if you're on a low income in most European countries, it's not great either. Where I'm from, uh, you have to pay um, the doctor out of pocket, and then you request for, uh, you request a reimbursement from the national health insurance, which oh. can take up to which during COVID took up to four months. Uh, and 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 if you and if you you know, if you want to assure it, I mean, you maybe you can pay with a credit card, but there's only so long you can keep that credit card debt, right? right. And, and you end up with a system where if you, for instance in in, in, in in my country, if you're homeless, um you're in the same situation, which means that you need to beg for money to be able to pay the doctor and then request reimbursement, which can take a very wow. long time, right? so 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 there's always people that 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 fall through the cracks of of most yeah. systems. And the question is, like, To what extent is it possible for us to create a competitive system where insurance companies um, uh, keep pressuring hospitals to bring uh, those costs down that are created by you know hospitals trying to enrich themselves but on the other side uh, that that it goes vice versa that insurance companies also don't rack up the prices and and i think competition is really needed and sort of the question is like what is the entry barrier for um, anyone to get into the medical or insurance space in order to disrupt those mm-hmm. type of industries i mean we've we've done we've done um, we've done some um, some 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 projects where we've looked into um, is it a good idea to have dental insurance or should you rather look for a subscription model where you have a certain right. amount of visits that you can do and and do you really need insurance at a certain age for those for those things? Well, because it is possible that you might have an accident that involves your teeth, most of dental um, is actually rudimentary care, where it might be better to you know pay for these in bulk and then use the amount of visits to 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 you know to to deal with those 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 minor problems that you might have in your dental care um, instead of an insurance model that is just inflated. Um, yeah,
1: it's yeah. interesting because um, I mean so. Yeah, when you're younger, you're like, oh, you don't need health insurance. (laughs) And that was me this last year. I didn't have health insurance. I, you know, we're like, well, we're young. We don't need it. You know, whatever. What's going to happen? And um, then I got diagnosed with cancer. So it's like, oh, I guess I do need health insurance now. But originally, I, you know, I started off when I first got diagnosed, I obviously had to do, you know, a handful of, of testing and imaging and things like that. I didn't have health insurance yet. So I was paying out of pocket. Either we call it self-pay or, you know, it's paying out of pocket. Um, And it's interesting because when I got those bills, they give you what they call a discount because you're self-paying. But it's really the actual cost of services minus all of the insurance stuff, Um, So it's like what the cost of service would actually be without the insurance inflation added on top of it, which I thought was really interesting, which kind of leads me into what you just asked is, you know, what is a good solution here? And I think the direct-to-consumer model is definitely a really cool and innovative option. It's just not as common here in the U.S., Um, You can find a few people that do it. It's also not had the best marketing. It's also referred to like concierge medicine, which sounds very, you know, 1%, very elite. But in reality, it is good for a lot of different consumers because, one, it just has so much more transparency as to what things would cost. So there's, you know, just it's a lot clearer whereas with insurance it's kind of a crab shoot you don't exactly know unless you really do your due diligence and look at the fine print and even then we were talking about you know things getting coded oftentimes things are coded wrongly and so then your insurance won't cover it because you're provider didn't code it correctly for your insurance and it just becomes such a complicated mess that most consumers aren't going to understand all these ins and outs and and you know really take the time to analyze it all and, and like who would want to? It's like not any fun. Um, and so that's why I think this direct to consumer model has a lot of promise because again there's just a lot more transparency with the price. Um it also just cuts out the a lot of the inflation from insurance and then it's you know the the doctors or the providers are getting what they need in order to provide the service paying for the like supplies and that's it. And you know, it, a lot of the other costs don't fall onto the consumer outside of like what you're actually getting, which I think is really nice. But again, I do think insurance is great for some people and for some situations. I mean, for me right now, I'm super glad I have insurance <laughs> in that I yeah. don't have to pay, you know, the direct price of everything. Um it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars, which It's not something I'm interested in 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 paying for. Um, Whereas, you know, for me, it's like I have my monthly premium, my deductible, and I'll pay probably no more than like ten to fifteen thousand a year for for you know cancer treatment, which is obviously one of those like really expensive things that people don't anticipate on paying for, but sometimes have to. So that's kind of like more of the emergency side, in my opinion, where it is helpful. But otherwise, people lose a lot of money in insurance.
0: And interesting thing is that a lot of Europeans listening to this might uh, might think of the number of ten to fifteen thousand dollars for a year and think, oh, that's a that's a fortune because they never really think about those numbers in bulk because usually they're, right. they're employees and they pay well the the the, 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 the their company pays that uh, and they actually don't really have transparency on how much is actually going into their health system and yeah. what they're getting for it. And on top of that, what we deal with is a lot of political battles on coverage. So what mm. is actually covered with the national insurance system becomes political and it goes into the health committee and people vote for their representatives based on what the representative politically thinks they can get through in parliament as to whether acupuncture should be covered or not so all of that becomes very political which politicizes the entire debate on on healthcare coverage uh, which has uh, which has a lot of downsides and interestingly yeah. there are two countries in Europe Switzerland and the Netherlands which are not known for necessarily a bad health system that actually don't have a national health insurance system that where mm. you have you you are required to be, uh, to be insured in, in, in some type of health uh, system, but it, it is private companies and where you also have those comparison uh, systems online, websites yeah. that, that offer you different choices. Choices are great, uh, but yes. it's also <laughs> about uh, a market that allows for as much competition and easy entry for totally. new ideas. Because I think the next idea on how to improve the insurance system and make it cheaper there's somebody studying at Stanford right now who can who can make it happen but we should Thumbs make out. it easy for that person to uh, to, totally. to actually make it happen uh, totally. Liz this has been this has been very very interesting uh, conversation thank you so much for joining the consumer podcast um, and you. for the entire audience I'll see you Thursday you have
1: to learn to pace yourself pressure you're just like every